This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Creating a podcast isn't that simple. It's more than just recording yourself and uploading it. To really get your show everything you want it to be, you're going to need a little bit more than that. You need easy and reliable hosting so your time can be spent creating your content. The most accurate download stats so you know that you're reaching the audience that you're wanting to. And a web page that makes setting up totally easy on you and won't take up too much of your valuable time. And Blueberry offers all of this and more for hosts and aspiring hosts alike. Simple media hosting, a fully integrated WordPress website with their PowerPress sites. So if you already have a podcast or you always dreamed about starting one, head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to sign up and the first month is free. The Blueberry support team is available to walk you through the steps of migrating your show without losing any subscribers or to get you started in the process of launching your new show. With the first month for free, using promo code DREAM, you've got no excuses. So let's get started. I do first want to take the time to thank all of you who have continued to support California Dreaming on Patreon. Make sure those of you who have recently subscribed that you keep your eyes on your mailboxes for a thank you card and a small gift from me, as well as join the Facebook group exclusively for patrons, Katie 2 Postmortem. Thank you to this week's newest patrons, Peggy D, Melissa C, Lucky Jean, A. Mia, who increased her pledge, Katina M, and Sean K. Your contributions help us to keep this show going and to bring more and better content each week. For as little as $1 a month, you can gain access to all the bonus content available on Patreon. So be sure to go browse around over there and see what's available. The link is in the show notes as well as on our website at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Again, thank you for your support. Today we have a very special episode to talk about. And it's going to be different than the usual cases that we cover in a couple of ways. This is likely one that you've never heard of. But if you're from anywhere around the Fresno, California area, it's possible you may have heard this case. It's also different because it's an unsolved case. In these, I tend not to cover as much as cases that have been solved and prosecuted. As sadly, sometimes there just isn't a whole lot to talk about when it comes to cases that are lesser known and unsolved. And another reason why this case is different is because it was brought to my attention by the childhood best friend of the victim. She sent me a message on Facebook an evening back in September, on the 11th as it would be. She asked me who she needed to speak to about getting her friend's story on the show. I looked at her message and it kind of made me smile a little bit because it's not like we've got some huge production team that scouts for guests and stories or that I have any kind of complex screening process to get a story told here on California Dreaming. So we got to talking over Messenger that night. Of course, I am more than happy to share the story of a loved one who has gone missing or been murdered and the case is unsolved. 
I've tried reaching out to family members of victims in the past to ask them about their story because I'm interested in telling it on the show, but it doesn't always work out well. My messages go unanswered sometimes. And most recently, a mother whose daughter was murdered had gone unsolved for more than 16 years, and she was interested in having her story told on California Dreaming at first. But then, after giving it some thought, she came to the conclusion that there wasn't anything about sharing her daughter's story on the show that was going to help give her case any traction. So she changed her mind, not wanting to go through with the podcast. It was actually going to be a standalone, one-off, multi-part series since I had mom to work with and I'd have so much more information to share, much more than I would have ever found on the internet searches. Today's story came to me from a woman named Katina. Her best friend was raped and murdered on August 22, 1996, in the city of Fresno, California. And today, more than 22 years later, her case remains unsolved. But there is DNA evidence that was recovered from the scene of the murder. And in 2002, that DNA was linked to several other rape cases in the Visalia area that occurred between 1999 and 2002. However, Katina's friend is the only known murder committed by this unknown predator. And if you're thinking what I'm thinking, when I first heard the details of this case, it's that in the wake of the apprehension of the Golden State Killer, and now the NorCal Rapist, it's that investigators must be on the cusp of possibly linking someone to that DNA very, very soon, hopefully, with the advances in DNA technology, coupled with the widespread popularity of a number of genealogy databases, these once nameless, faceless sexual predators and murderers who have likely grown complacent in their old age, thinking that their crimes are long forgotten, hopefully have another thing coming. And this is exactly what Katina is hoping for, for her best friend, who has now been dead longer than she was alive. And we're going to talk about this today in the 64th episode of California Dreaming, The Unsolved Murder of Debbie Dorian. All of the information provided to me today in this story came directly from Debbie's friend Katina. And I'd like to take the time to thank her for answering all of the questions that I asked about Debbie to the best of her ability. And bless her heart, she did the best that she could so that we could bring you the most comprehensive story today. Over the years, Katina's grief has manifested into anger, and there is hardly a day that goes by that Debbie doesn't cross her mind. It is my hope, and I'm sure it's the hope of all of my friends, and by friends I mean listeners, but I'd rather call you my friends that it's all of our hope that the violent sexual predator and murderer is brought to justice soon, as he has spent far too much time, not only free, but free to harm other women. 
and I also hope that this helps Katina and hopefully Debbie's family feel a little bit better that we're able to bring her story to all of you who are so kind to listen because I know that you do so with compassion and empathy and I am so grateful to all of you for that. As I mentioned earlier, Debbie is her killer's only known murder. So it leads us to wonder, why did he choose to murder Debbie? As it did not seem his primary focus in any of his future attacks, so we can only speculate. I do have a couple of theories. One is perhaps Debbie was his very first victim. The other crimes that he's been linked to did not occur until three to five years after Debbie's murder. Maybe in his first attack, he felt like he had to kill her or to let her die in order to avoid being identified. Maybe he was afraid of being linked to the killing and in order to eliminate the potential of Debbie identifying him or even testifying against him, he decided that she had to die in order to silence her. And then as time passed and her case grew cold, her killer became comfortable with it, thinking that he had gotten away with murder. And maybe he spent those three years in between murdering Debbie all the way until his next rape, panicking about killing her. And maybe this scared him and he really didn't feel the need to kill his future victims seeing as though he wasn't getting caught for his crimes. Maybe he felt like he really didn't need to kill his victims. He could just break in, attack, rape, and leave without having to add murder to his list of offenses. Maybe Debbie put up a fierce struggle for her life. Maybe she screamed. And when he silenced her with duct tape, which he wrapped around her face and head so tightly, Debbie ended up suffocating to death. So, not to give this killer any type of leeway or excuses, but because he never murdered anyone else that he raped afterwards, I tend to think the possibility might be that Debbie's murder may have been unintentional. I mean, obviously he intended to do her harm, but because she was his only murder, I think it was a mistake when he bound her too tightly, cutting off her ability to breathe. Of course, it doesn't diminish the crime at all, but it's just a thought as he is not known to have murdered anyone else. Anyway, as California law is written, he would still be held responsible for her first-degree murder because Debbie's death occurred while a felony was being committed, namely the sexual assault. So let me tell you a little bit about Debbie. She was born June 20th, 1974. Her father lived in Fresno and her mother in Los Osos. So throughout her childhood, she was shuttled back and forth between their homes. She was their only child. Debbie's mom was a horse breeder and her father was an audiologist. Katina met Debbie in 1983 when she was 10 years old and Debbie was 9. 
Debbie's dad and Katina's uncle were good friends, and she happened to be with her uncle one day when they went to Debbie's dad's house. Debbie was playing in her bedroom when her dad brought Katina in to introduce her as a new friend. It took some time for the girl's friendship to grow. Debbie had a very outgoing personality, and Katina would describe herself as being more on the shy side. To Katina, people who tended to be more on the adventurous side, in her words, freaked her out, particularly when she was young. But eventually, their friendship blossomed, and soon, it was ironclad. Katina described Debbie as being an extrovert to the extreme. She loved being around people so much. As Katina saw it, Debbie was the light in any dark room. Any place she would walk into, she would be the one who brought this positive energy that was otherworldly. I guess we would have had to known Debbie to fully understand how vibrant she was, as it's even difficult for Katina to explain or to put into words what she was like in life. She was so much fun to be around. She was an adventure seeker, and she loved testing her limits. She was a caring young woman with a very warm and loving heart. She was fiercely devoted to her family and her friends. She was hardworking, cautiously optimistic, and loyal to the bone. Katina described Debbie as being so much fun to be around when they were growing up. Debbie taught Katina how to jump on a bed without your parents finding out what you were doing. And I'm actually curious as to this covert bed jumping technique Debbie seems to have figured out. Debbie loved playing outdoors, going on bike rides, going swimming, and telling spooky stories under the covers with a flashlight. She also liked talking about boys and other typical preteen stuff. She loved reading, she enjoyed collecting stickers and garbage pill kids trading cards. Where are my 80s kids out there? We all had those too, right? Despite their differences, Katina and Debbie did have a great deal in common in other ways. When they got to high school, they both became somewhat rebellious, which of course is not uncommon for many teenagers. But both girls understood their limitations and their boundaries, making sure to never lose sight of what's important and to not push their rebellious natures too far. The last thing the girls wanted to ever do was to cause any type of harm or pain to themselves, to their families, or to their friends. As Katina would put it, it was mostly cheeky kid stuff. They would do stuff like tell their parents that they were going to the movies, but instead they would go hang out at Bob's Big Boy with all of their friends. I remember Bob's Big Boy too. There was one one block away from where I would eventually go to high school, but it's a Coco's now. But I was never really cool enough to hang out at Bob's with the popular kids though. Anyway, this was also back in the pre-Starbucks days. Oh, by the way, I am very close in age to both Debbie and Katina. 
My birthday is very close to theirs, so listening to Katina tell of her times with Debbie throughout childhood and into high school, I almost feel like I was there. But I'm pretty sure I wasn't cool enough to hang out with them either, but I digress. So before there was a Starbucks on every single corner, the girls frequented a cafe on the other side of town called the Java Cafe. And on the weekends when Debbie was in town, they would hang out there on Friday and Saturday nights. The place had the best coffee around and every weekend there would be a different musical ensemble playing. Debbie would have her obligatory raspberry chocolate coffee and Katina was there for the music and the energy of the crowd. Katina and Debbie did not attend the same school at first, as Debbie was enrolled at school where her mother resided in Los Osos. They would mostly hang out on the weekends when she would be at her dad's house, which was literally right around the corner from where Katina lived. Once Debbie moved to Fresno permanently, the girls did attend the later part of high school together. I asked Katina about Debbie's relationship with her parents and she explained that Debbie's relationship with her mother and father shifted at different times in her life. During high school, Debbie had moved out of her mom's house and in with her dad. And that's when the girls began attending school together. But Katina never really knew why her friend moved away from mom's. Debbie never really wanted to talk about it. But what she was able to gather from Debbie was that their relationship was strained. But whatever caused that, Debbie did not disclose. Debbie did have a very close relationship with her dad, but according to Katina, she had a terrible relationship with her dad's wife, her stepmother. According to Katina, her stepmom was very mean to Debbie, and she saw it for herself on several occasions. Katina described her stepmom as the epitome of the wicked stepmother, and things always were tense between the two of them whenever Katina would visit. It was super uncomfortable. But being around Debbie's dad was always a delight. Debbie loved him very, very much. Debbie excelled academically in school. She was a good student. She was diligent. And she worked hard for her grades. But she knew how to cut loose and have fun at the same time. Katina used to poke fun at her all the time, teasing her for being a nerd with an awesome GPA. But secretly, Katina's grades were even nerdier than Debbie's, but she managed to keep that to herself. Both girls studied hard, and Debbie really enjoyed school, mostly for the social aspects. She got along well with just about everyone who knew her. She made friends easily in school, and she mostly got along well with teachers. Debbie loved music. Us 80s kids, those of us who graduated high school in the early 90s, some of this is going to sound familiar to you. Van Halen, Bon Jovi, Snap, CNC Music Factory, D-Light, Extreme, The Cranberries, Morrissey, Fine Young Cannibals, Seal, and yes, Katina, I bet you could go on and on. I probably could too. I remember all of those. 
and I was also into R.E.M., Pearl Jam, Nirvana, Alanis Morissette, Beastie Boys, Red Hot Chili Peppers, House of Pain, 311, Green Day. I'm like having crazy flashbacks right now. In addition to good music, Debbie loved good food. She loved going to the beach, art, and horseback riding. Her mom owned horses, and the girls went riding several times. They loved driving around, having fun, listening to music, going to the warehouse or to Tower Records. Man, I miss those places. They would cruise the main, they'd go shopping, and every once in a while they'd squeeze in some time to study. But it was mostly hundreds and hundreds of hours of girl talk. Katina and Debbie did have a break in their relationship during high school, right before the senior prom. A break that devastated Katina. Debbie began associating with a new crowd of people, and they weren't really Katina's cup of tea, as she puts it. And the reason why Debbie's new friends did not go over well with Katina is because they were what you would label as the popular kids in school. And they were the types that would regularly bully other students. As a result of Debbie's new set of friends, she and Katina drifted apart. And it had even escalated into a verbal argument between the two friends. Katina was hugely disappointed in Debbie for her standing by and watching her so-called new friends bully other kids. And she did nothing but watch. Katina didn't agree with the types of people Debbie was wanting to hang around with, and she even felt as though these new friends were having an adverse effect on Debbie's overall attitude and personality, and it wasn't in a good way. Katina just really wanted no part of this. Debbie graduated from Bullard High School in Fresno with the class of 1992, which happens to be the same year I graduated as well. She would go on to attend Fresno City College and then on to California State University, Fresno, where she had a double major of audiology, following in her father's footsteps, who was an audiologist, and economics. The girls did attend the same colleges, but at different times. And this break in Katina's and Debbie's friendship would last all the way into their second year of college sometime during the spring of 1995. They did briefly see one another the previous fall of 94. Katina spotted Debbie seated on the grass under a tree at Fresno City College, but she was still with the same group of popular bully friends. Katina had the urge to stop and talk to her. You see, since the last time the two had spoken, Katina had suffered a loss her dad had passed away. She wanted to stop and tell Debbie the news that her dad had fallen ill and died. But when Debbie noticed Katina, she pretended as if she didn't see her and simply ignored her altogether. It was an incredibly painful moment for Katina to get such the cold shoulder treatment from her former best friend. It had only been about four months since her dad passed away, so for Katina, Debbie's brush-off cut a little deeper. A few months later, in early 1995, 
Katina spotted Debbie in the tower district. She was hanging out with a friend of hers and Katina was with her then fiance. They happened to randomly bump into each other one day. Much to Katina's surprise, Debbie seemed genuinely happy to see her. Despite the way she had treated her in the past, having given her the cold shoulder and whatnot. And Katina, of course, was equally surprised and happy to see Debbie as well. The girls swapped phone numbers. They expressed to one another how much they missed their friendship. They hugged and they parted ways with intentions of reconnecting and catching up sometime in the near future. Debbie and Katina, of course, were a little bit older by then. Life happens, you know. Expectations change, responsibilities shift, and it was obvious the two had gone through their own personal evolution in the time that had passed since high school. Both had grown up. They'd both matured. Katina was able to tell that there was a small sense of hesitancy towards one another, based on how things had ended so badly in the past. But they were going to hopefully be able to push that aside so they could maybe pick up some pieces of what had once been an incredibly close relationship. However, they came to realize that the relationship they now had once they reconnected was just not the same, which is to be expected. People change, they drift, they evolve. But as time went on, after the second chance at their friendship, it slowly got better. The girls were growing closer, as they were learning how to get past the emotional scars that were left when their friendship ended back in high school. And you know and I know when you're in your early 20s, you're just busy. At least I was. I worked a lot. I went to college. Sometimes I'd have a boyfriend, but I don't really want to talk about that. And I imagine it was much of the same for both Katina and Debbie. So at this point in time, they were managing to get together about once, possibly twice a month. Debbie did have a job, and she was living in her own apartment close to Fresno State, which she moved to sometime during the time when the girls were not speaking. So, the friends were still in the process of rebuilding their fractured friendship. But from what I understand, things were, at the very least, better than they had previously been. They were working on it. So in the summer of 1996, life was good for Debbie. She was going to Fresno State, about to graduate, matter of fact. She was holding down a job. She was living on her own, but she was advertising for a roommate. She was also in a relationship with a young man named John. Katina does not know very much about him other than he was working as a firefighter. Debbie was very much invested in her relationship with him. And from all intents and purposes, they got along great. And Debbie did indeed envision a future with John, according to Katina. Debbie's parents both felt the couples were a good fit. Katina would go on to meet John a little bit later in this story. And it would be under devastating circumstances. In July of 1996, Debbie was on summer break from classes at Fresno State, and Katina happened to bump into her at a place called La Boulangerie, 
which, if you know some French, is obviously a bakery, a very popular one in Fresno. Both girls were busy with life at the time, so finding time to get together was challenging. They stood in line at the bakery. Debbie was kind of in a rush, but they were there and talked for about a half hour. About a month later, on or around August 18th, Katina called Debbie to see if she was available to meet for coffee. Debbie told her that she was super busy and was preparing to go on a trip with her dad to visit an audiology school up north somewhere. She said she had a few things that she needed to do around the apartment and that she would give her a call in a few days to figure out a time when they could get together, but indicated that it would most likely be the following weekend that they could grab a coffee. The conversation was brief, but it was positive, and then it was upbeat, and the girls had tentative plans, and Katina was very much looking forward to catching up with her in the upcoming weekend. But it would never happen. That chance meeting at La Boulangerie would be the last time Katina would ever see Debbie. And that phone call making coffee plans would be the last time she'd ever speak to her. On August 22nd, 1996, Debbie's father, who had plans to travel with her to that audiology school, arrived at her apartment. They were supposed to leave that morning, so I assume he either knocked on the door and received no answer and let himself in, I'm not certain if the door was locked or if he had a key or if it was unlocked and he was just able to open it. But either way, Debbie's dad entered the apartment and that's when he discovered his daughter was dead. Debbie had been bound, gagged, raped, and murdered. It would later be determined that Debbie had been dead for approximately two days before her father made the discovery. Debbie's father has never spoken about finding his daughter in the manner in which he did. Katina at the time was in a relationship with the Fresno police officer and was able to glean a bit of information from him, though he would not tell her very many details other than it was brutal. He did also share with her that there did not appear to be any forced entry into the home. Beyond that, Katina had no information about the condition Debbie was found in, other than the facts that I've already shared with you about her being bound, gagged, and raped. The officer that Katina was in a relationship with would not share those details with her, even though she asked. He couldn't, even if he wanted to as that would have jeopardized his job. Today, Katina is glad that she doesn't know, as Debbie's death would go on to torment her for many, many years to come. One of the things we wonder, of course, is how could two days pass before anyone became alarmed that Debbie had not been heard from? We've heard many cases where people become alarmed if a person is five minutes late for work because it was out of character for them. People right away start seeing red flags and start making phone calls and start 
sending people over to their houses. But sometimes some people just have no place to be for a couple days, you know? We see that happen on occasion. Debbie was on break from classes. She lived alone. She might not have been scheduled to work because of her upcoming plans to travel with her dad. And from what I understand, according to Katina, Debbie's boyfriend, who's a firefighter, was away working on a wildfire at the time. Which makes complete sense, as here in California, August is certainly the peak of fire season. And Katina had spoken to her by phone just a couple days prior, and it wasn't like they talked every single day anyway. So alarm bells just weren't going off for anyone. I peppered Katina with question after question after question about the crime, but she did not have a lot of answers for my most pointed questions. I asked if there had been signs of a struggle, if items were knocked over, were things damaged? Did it look like Debbie fought? Did she have any details about the scene? But she just wasn't privy to that information. She did know that it looked as though Debbie was eating a snack or something to that effect. She also had heard that she had just arrived home from shopping, but she can't be quite sure. She heard that there was some partially eaten food on the counter and something interrupted her. But it did seem she had recently arrived home from wherever she had been. Katina was never actually able to get any of the information about what is speculated to have happened at the time Debbie was attacked. She would say that she did not have the guts to ask anyone, especially Debbie's mom and dad. Of course, she didn't want to upset them. In Dreamers, this issue would come up again in the weeks Katina and I were talking about Debbie's murder. When she messaged me and asked me if I could tell Debbie's story on the show, one of the first things I wanted to know was how would her mother feel about Debbie's story being told. I asked her if she thought mom would be okay with it or would she resist the idea. And the only way to find that out would be to call her. As Debbie's mom, Sarah, is not one to use text or Facebook messenger. Although she is on Facebook, but that's about the extent of it. Katina said that she would give Sarah a call. It had been about two years since she had spoken to her, so she really needed to work up the nerve to pick up the phone and dial. In the meantime, Katina had my laundry list of questions to answer, so I would be able to work with the information she had and weave it together into the story for all of you to listen to. Katina finally emailed me back with pages and pages of details for us. And she did an amazing job on all of it. And I know talking about her friend, though 22 years has now passed, it hasn't gotten any easier. And it brings up all these sad and painful memories and thoughts of your friend who you loved and missed very much. It is truly terrifying to imagine what Debbie's last moments were like. The pain, the fear, her life slipping away, and she's all alone. 
And I can imagine that these are only some of the thoughts that run through your mind when you're trying to build up the nerve to pick up the phone to call mom and ask her if it's okay if we get on this random podcast with this random person to talk about the worst thing that's ever happened in your life. But Katina, dreamers, this woman, she is so determined to keep Debbie's memory alive. She did call Sarah, and she told her what we wanted to do. And Sarah gave us her blessings. I called Sarah myself also the next day. I had the same anxieties, of course, getting on the phone with her. You worry about triggering all this heartache and pain. But what I've also come to realize is that families of murder victims or even missing persons are more often than not glad and relieved that we are still out here caring about their loved one whose case has gone cold. And that was basically my takeaway in my conversation with Debbie's mom. But if I had to speculate, I'd say she seems kind of relegated to the idea that her daughter's case is unsolved and that's the way it's been and if that's the way it's going to be, then so be it. But if there is any hope of finding her killer and bringing him to justice, and if our podcast or anything that can bring any kind of attention to the case or help move it forward, and it certainly can't hurt. I told Katina that my impression is, is that Debbie's mom seems hopeful but not hopeful at the same time because of all the time that's passed. The hope is always right there, though. Hope is impossibly persistent. So back to Debbie's case. As I stated, there was no indication that there was any kind of forced entry into her home. It seems as though she allowed her killer inside. According to Katina, ever since Debbie was a child, she was very particular about whom she allowed into the home. She was very cautious about being safe, and she was also very guarded about her privacy, and she would not be likely to open the door to anyone that she did not know. Nor did it appear that anyone gained entry into the apartment while she was out and was lying in wait while she walked through the door that day. However, if you remember I mentioned earlier, Debbie was actively searching for a roommate. It's been speculated that perhaps she was expecting a potential renter to show up and look at the place, and she let her guard down momentarily. So because Debbie was known to be careful about who she opened the door to, her family and friends don't think it was a complete stranger that just happened upon her door and she let him in. That she must have been expecting someone, even if it was someone that she didn't know. It was someone that she was expecting. It doesn't seem that anyone heard anything untoward going on in her apartment, so that would possibly indicate that Debbie was overtaken by surprise and very quickly. I again peppered Katina with a plethora of questions about the crime for which she just did not have any answers. She just wasn't privy to the details and 
I'm thinking not very many people have been over the years that the case has ended up growing cold. Investigators often keep specific details close to the vest as to not compromise the investigation, especially when questioning potential persons of interest. I did ask Katina about all those questions. If anyone heard anything coming from her apartment, did anyone hear a struggle or a fight or a scream for help? Did anyone passing by report anything? Did anyone see anything or anyone suspicious outside the apartment? Did anyone see a suspicious vehicle? Was anything stolen from Debbie's apartment? Katina did not have this information and if investigators know anything or if Debbie's parents know, they are not making that information public, which is understandable, like I said, in order to maintain the integrity of the investigation. But dreamers, there is something huge in this case. Something huge we've been talking about a couple of weeks ago when we discussed the NorCal rapist and the Golden State Killer. DNA. Yes, Debbie's killer left his DNA behind at the scene. I asked Katina if she knew the source of the DNA, the nature in which it was deposited. Was it blood? Maybe if Debbie injured her attacker? Or was it under her fingernails because she scratched him? Or was it semen left as a result from the rape? But again, Katina didn't know. I think it's a detail investigators don't want released to the general public. But yeah, we do know that there's DNA. And today, advances in DNA technology have progressed in the 22 years since Debbie was killed. And the identity of who did this to her is only one click away from being uncovered. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. I asked Katina to tell me how it was that she came to find out about Debbie's murder. She said she had just gotten home and she turned on the TV and tuned it into the local news channel. It's one of those habits that she had as she came through the door each afternoon, either after work or school. When she went over to check her messages on her answering machine, and if you don't know what an answering machine is, you're probably too young to be listening to this, so go find your parents. And surprisingly, Katina had more than a dozen messages, 15 to be exact. I asked Katina about this. Was this unusual for her to receive this many messages in one day? And she said, yes, it was very unusual. She normally only came home to a maximum of three messages. One from her mom, one from her sister, and one from her fiance. When Katina pressed play, she had a parade of messages, people leaving condolences. But Katina was perplexed. She had no idea what they were talking about. She did have a number of messages from a mutual friend of hers and Debbie's named Heather. Heather was a good friend going back to junior high, now known as middle school to you youngsters. Her messages were just as ominous, asking Katina if she was okay. 
confused, but at the same time feeling somewhat concerned that something might have happened to someone in her family, she quickly called Heather back and asked her what was going on. Heather asked her if she was sitting down. Katina said that she was not, but Heather began telling her anyway, telling her that something happened to Debbie. As I was reading Katina's answers to my questions about this moment, I tried to picture it. What it was like for Katina trying to process what she's hearing, thinking that something has happened to a member of her family, yet getting told something has happened to Debbie. Katina paused for a moment and asked, Debbie who? Heather also paused for a moment and over the phone loudly said Debbie you're Debbie it's been all over the news Katina who had already flipped on the TV when she got home turned and looked at the screen and she saw Debbie's picture right there on her TV splashed across the news she stood there horrified as she listened to the reporters describe how her childhood friend's body had been discovered by her father. It felt unreal, like this can't be happening. This was like walking into a nightmare. Katina still had the phone receiver up to her ear when she heard Heather ask her if she was going to be okay. Katina screamed into the phone that she would not be okay. And then she slammed it down. Katina was reeling from the news of her friend. A friend she had been on the cusp of reconnecting, renewing their friendship. She was gone. She screamed. She cried. She became sick to her stomach. She threw things against the wall. Katina had completely lost it. In her words, she was shattered, totally shattered. And the more she watched the news coverage of Debbie's murder, the more sick she became. And then she saw the county coroner on the news wheeling the body bag containing her friend out of the apartment. Katina fell apart very quickly. Debbie's parents, Sarah and Peter, laid their only child to rest in Ararat Cemetery located in Fresno. Her casket was closed during her services because the damage to her body was too extensive. For Katina, this whole experience was very surreal. I asked her to describe for us how Debbie's parents were in the wake of their child's funeral. She described Debbie's father as being a man that was shattered, just destroyed. Having been the one to have found his baby girl in the manner in which he did, battered, violated, murdered in her apartment. He has never been the same. As we can only imagine, something as horrific as this could easily ruin a person forever. 
To this day, Debbie's father still cannot find it within himself to even speak a word about her. He's kept it all bottled inside for 22 years now. And Katita is under the impression he wants little or nothing to do with the investigation any further. Debbie's mother, Sarah, however, has been able to cope with her death with a bit more openness and is passionate about this case continuing to be examined and re-examined. Both Katina and I spoke to her prior to moving forward with this story, and she was willing to allow us to tell what happened to her child all those years ago. She is very, very sweet, and of course, absolutely did not deserve to be made to live out her life without her daughter. Nobody deserves that. On the surface, Sarah came across as filled with hope that the story or any kind of attention brought to Debbie's murder could possibly jar loose some old memories or ignite someone's sense of decency, to dig at their sense of humanity, to awaken somebody's conscience. But I will say that there was a part of me as I listened to her voice come through my phone that I couldn't help but feel some tinges of despair and resignation. It's really hard to describe. It's as if living with Debbie's murder being unsolved is the way life has been for 22 years. And if that's the way the story ends, then that's the way the story ends. I don't know. As I listened to Sarah's words, I couldn't help but try to put myself in her place. After 22 years of nothing, does one simply grow weary of fighting, of hoping? Does it at some point become easier to just learn how to live with this being your reality? I wondered how I would feel if all this time passed and I was no closer to knowing who caused the worst thing in my life ever than the day it first happened. Would I be dogged in my fight? Would I be strong? Would I be persistent? Would I never give up? Would I lose hope as year after year after year passes with no answers? I'd like to think I would if it were my child having been ripped so violently from this world. But I can't possibly begin to understand the depths of despair and pain and anguish to carry the weight of that on your shoulders for 22 years. So I can't say for sure how I would be. Debbie was a little shy of six months older than me. So I would surmise that her mother could possibly be close to my mother's age, approaching her 70s or possibly already in her 70s. Could I carry this grief when I'm at that age? Could you? Debbie's mom told me that I could tell her story. And if anything were to come of it, then great. It can't possibly hurt. And I'm hoping and praying with every fiber of my being that Debbie's mother lives to see the day that whoever did this to her daughter 
is brought to justice. And if she doesn't, I hope she finds some comfort, albeit small, that she never ever gave up and she never stopped wanting to keep Debbie's memory alive and strong, that she talked about her as much as she could to help ease the anguish of her absence, and that she pushed in all the ways that she knew how to get her daughter's murder solved. And if the time comes that Sarah leaves this world without the answers that she so desperately deserves, then there is at least one person who deeply loved and cared for Debbie who will continue the fight for her until she sees her killer brought to justice. And that's Katina. And in our small way, in the only way that we can, we hope to bring a light upon this story by putting this out there for everyone to listen to. In the days and weeks following Debbie's death, Katina tried to maintain an open line of communication with Debbie's dad. She tried to be there for him, tried to maintain the relationship that they had had. Remember, Katina's uncle and Debbie's dad were friends. That's how the girls met, and that's how they became friends. She thought maybe because she had such a close relationship with his daughter that she might be able to help him find some kind of solace or comfort, but this would not be the case. After a few months following Debbie's murder, her father really didn't want to speak to Katina anymore. Debbie's mother and Katina actually didn't speak until recent years, specifically when Debbie's case was reopened 20 years later in 2016 which I will get into. It was then Katina and Sarah began talking. They connected on Facebook. And now conversations between them are few and far between, but they do keep in touch. Actually, when I was contacted about this case, I was asked if there was any way to get in touch with mom or dad to make sure that they would be comfortable with Katina and I working on bringing you the story. Katina said that she would be able to give Sarah a call, but she really wasn't able to bring herself to do it right away. I mean, I didn't want to push Katina into calling her, and we don't exactly need mom's permission to talk about our daughter's case, but it is nice to know when you have the blessing of the family, which is what I wanted. And Katina, bless her heart, when she finally emailed me all the information that she had about Debbie's life and her death, she finally built up the courage to give Sarah a call, and she was on board with us. When Debbie was murdered, there was sustained and substantial media attention in the Central Valley area of California, but as time passed, like many stories such as Debbie's, the media tends to move on. But 20 years later, in 2016, two of the detectives, Bob Shiotis and Vince Zavala, who worked on Debbie's case from the very beginning and had since retired, decided that they were going to come out of retirement and reopen the investigation of this case that has haunted them 
for two decades. Of course, they are hoping for the advances that have been made since in DNA technology to help them in their renewed examination of this case. I can only assume now that two years later, after a couple of high-profile cold cases in California having since been solved via DNA matches made through public genealogy databases, that these detectives could possibly be looking in that direction as well. Detectives have stated it is not likely that the person who left the DNA evidence has been incarcerated in California because they would have been compelled to submit a DNA sample at the time that they were processed into the system and no matches have been found in that database. Of course, these may be more of those things that obviously need to be kept close to the vest for obvious reasons. And if Debbie's mother is privy to information that is not made public, then she's doing the same and keeping it to herself. So everything that I've presented to you here today is nothing you can't find online. Or if you're lucky like I am to have gotten to know Katina over the past few weeks, we have her personal story of her life with Debbie and she's been so kind and open to share with us because we all know that this isn't easy but it's important. So when the announcement was made two years ago at a press conference, Fresno Police Chief Jerry Dyer joined the two retired detectives and Debbie's mom in speaking to the media. Of Debbie, her mother said, quote, her life was cut short by evil people who caused her so much pain. The person or persons who killed my daughter are still free and continue to harm young women. And these two men, referring to the detectives, have taken her case to heart, unquote. According to published articles about the case, the suspect is believed to be a white male who would today be in his 40s or 50s. He is believed to be about 5 foot 10 inches tall or 1.7 meters and weighing between 180 to 210 pounds or 81.65 to 95.25 kilograms. But he's also been described as having a slim build as well. He seems to have either blonde or gray hair. He wore either a hooded sweatshirt or some kind of covering like a bandana or a scarf over his lower face and he had a handgun. But detectives have not released sketches of the suspect that were made back then because of the possible changes in his appearance over the years. The perpetrator or perpetrators was somehow able to ascertain that the victims were alone and were able to gain control of the victim by brandishing their handgun. Interestingly, Authorities have said that they believe that there were others present when Debbie was killed. Now, I'm not certain what they meant by that, but when I read that detail, it kind of sounded strange to me. I don't know why. It might be because when I think of a serial rapist, I tend to assume that there is only one person involved in the crime. And as far as I know, there has been one DNA profile developed from this crime scene. And if there was somebody else, like a lookout or an accomplice, would that person or persons 
been able to keep this secret all those years? When I spoke to Sarah, she told me that she thinks that it's possible that someone who used to know Debbie's killer, maybe even an ex-wife or an ex-girlfriend that has since moved on, that maybe one of them may come forward if they are reminded of this case, that they might want to talk to detectives now, now that so many years have passed and they are no longer intimately connected with the suspect. According to the two detectives, there were many leads that, due to change of directions within different departments, they weren't able to finish. Plus, they told the media at the press conference that they had some people of interest in mind, and they were prepared to pursue those leads. And they echoed the same sentiment Sarah expressed to me, that as time passes, Loyalties dissolve, consciences develop, and perhaps somebody knows something that will give them the information that they need to put this puzzle together. I've mentioned that Debbie's killer had been linked to a number of rape cases that occurred in the Visalia area between 1999 and 2002, three years after her murder. The assaults all took place either in the late evening after 7.30 p.m., or in the early morning before 10 a.m. The assaults that he's been linked to took place on the following dates and times. On July 20th, 1999, at 11.40 p.m. September 26th, 1999, at 7.45 p.m. April 3rd, 2001, at 10 p.m. October 26th, 2001, at 6.45 a.m. January 4th, 2002, at 6.35 a.m. January 27th, 2002, at 6.25 a.m. August 23rd, 2002, at 10.42 p.m. And it is believed that the perpetrator attempted to rob a victim on December 23rd, 2001, at 7 a.m. The locations of each of these assaults is also available online in case anyone listening lived in the Visalia area in the late 90s or early 2000s that might be familiar with the area who may have had any information. I will provide you with the contact info at the end of the show as well as in the show notes. I asked Katina about the early stages of the investigation. She told me that she was questioned briefly about any information that she may have been able to provide and she told them what she knew. They asked her if she knew anyone who may have wanted to do this to Debbie, but of course, nobody came to mind. Who in Debbie's world would want to do something like this? They asked about Debbie's boyfriend, but Katina unfortunately didn't know him that well to be able to have made any kind of assessment as to what she thought of him. And she actually didn't meet him in person until the day of the funeral. Remember, her relationship with Debbie was on the mend at the time. They were in the process of working on their relationship, and it just so happened to be during a very busy time in both of their lives. Back in 1996, it wasn't like it is now. Not everybody had a cell phone at the ready. Social media wasn't a thing yet. So keeping in touch meant a lot of phone tag and coordinating schedules to get together. I mean, we still have to do that now if we want to get together with our friends, but 
In between lunches or coffee dates, there can be lots of messaging and texting going on in the interim, but not so back then. The initial suspects in the investigation included Debbie's father, her boyfriend, and there was another person of interest police investigated, but all were ruled out following DNA analysis. I don't know exactly how in-depth the people on the periphery of Debbie's life were investigated, or how far out from her immediate circle of friends and family police looked, but I can only assume these detectives, seeing as though they were coming out of retirement some 20 years after the fact, that they had put their heart and souls into this case. After all, they could only work with what they had at the time. So now, with technology and time on their side, fingers crossed that they're able to bring about some new leads to track down. Over the couple of weeks that I was speaking to Katina about this case, I know that it dredged up some very painful memories for her. In order for me to weave this story together for you listening, I asked her if I could email her a series of questions. Some were very pointed and specific about Debbie's life and her death, so I would be able to paint a very vivid, a very human picture of her for all of you. Some of the cases I've told over the past year have really touched us, haven't they? Sometimes they move us to tears, and I'm no exception. Most recently, we talked about Gwen Araujo. We talked about Emily Doe. We talked a little bit about Elliot Roger. In these cases, they tend to stick with us. They make big headlines, and their stories resonate. There are stories we've talked about that you may not have heard of before because they didn't garner as much media attention or they happened a long time ago and faded from our public consciousness. And I think Debbie may be one of those many that you have likely not heard of before today. She did get a good amount of media coverage in 1996. And I get the feeling it was big news in the local area but I hadn't heard of Debbie down here in Southern California either. Not until Katina introduced me to the story and to her. I asked Katina how Debbie's murder impacted her life. Her immediate response was that it is indescribable how she's been impacted. She described the first few years as feeling as though there was a gigantic empty hole in her life. There was this void. And even though they had been estranged for a number of years, Debbie was still out there, somewhere, living life. And the girls were on the mend. They were becoming reacquainted. I know I keep reminding you of that fact. It bothers me, though. I feel this deep sadness when I think about the time that was lost. But their friendship was being rediscovered. And then it was quickly lost again, but this time forever. Katina made it clear that their breakup and their friendship devastated her. The company that Debbie was keeping, the fight they'd had over it, and the years of not speaking or not seeing one another that followed after having been so close. Debbie's death, her being gone, not 
being in this world anymore caused Katina this feeling of uneasiness, which persists to this day. Not having Debbie in her life is a void that has not been filled and made all the more difficult that her killer is still out there, free to live his life how he chooses. For Katina, I feel that unease, not knowing who it was that did this to her. But it also makes me angry. It reminds us of the unfairness in life sometimes. Debbie was a young woman who had done nothing wrong in her life. She had never caused anyone any kind of pain or suffering. She was on the verge of finishing school and moving on to follow in her father's footsteps in the career path that she was pursuing. She was in a good relationship with the man who cared about her. She had parents who adored her, and she had friends that loved her and continue to love her to this day. And Katina is one of them. She is still here being her voice to stand up for her after all these years because I'm certain that if it was the other way around, Debbie would have done the same for her. Not a day goes by that Katina doesn't think of her friend. And since the day her message popped up on my Facebook, there hasn't been a day that I haven't thought of her friend and Katina as well. Katina is persistent. Once I told her that I would be honored to share Debbie's case with my dreamers, she's messaged me nearly every day. I emailed her so many questions that I wanted answers to. And she would check in with me after a day or two had passed to let me know that she was working on them. And I know it was a lot to have to answer. I may be the one telling you all this story today, but really, I am only the vehicle bringing it to you. Katina told the story. She brought Debbie to life for me so I could bring her to life for you. Debbie's death abruptly ended what her and Katina had been trying to work on. I can feel the hurt and the guilt that Katina feels when I talk to her about it. I don't think that those feelings are uncommon. However, I haven't experienced the loss of a best friend like this. I've lost family, but not friends, knock on wood. Another strong theme in Katina's life as it relates to Debbie's death, is her feelings manifested into anger over time. And this led to a fall, a spiral into deep depression. Six months after Debbie's murder, Katina was sexually assaulted at a party. These overwhelming feelings of having no control over her own life took over. She felt like she was out of control. I asked her if she wanted to omit this part. She had sent it along with her email. It's so personal and so intimate, but she's comfortable leaving her experience in the narrative because she doesn't want to be afraid to talk about it. Prior to being murdered, Debbie was sexually assaulted, and then Katina 
and it feels like we are hard-pressed to find any person who has not been assaulted in some way, shape, or form nowadays. I was getting overwhelmed with it just a couple weeks ago when we talked about Emily Doe, and then we followed that up with a short discussion about the Golden State Killer and the NorCal Rapist, and then Bill Cosby. And then we've been bombarded with this coverage of the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. And now we're back to discussing Debbie and Katina. A week or so ago, I began to think that this was just too much. And it's part of the reason why I went with the ghost ship fire story, just to move away from the topic for a moment. But you know, I really don't need to do that. This is something that's been swept aside for long enough. I feel Katina's anger when I think about this killer out there attacking women and hasn't been stopped. And I've let my frustrations come out in several of our episodes in the past about how I feel about certain perpetrators. I didn't want to bring all these angry and hurt feelings to the surface for Katina, but I've come to realize that they're going to be there whether I bring them up or not. So the best thing that we can do is hope that this can be somewhat of a catharsis for not only Katina, but for Debbie's mom and all of those who loved and cared for her and for myself and all of us who get angry and frustrated at these injustices. I want all of us to feel a sense of relief when we're done listening to this. And if we could just get one person to listen to the story or one person to share it with another or one person to be able to open up about their own trauma or one person who knows something to pick up the phone and say something, then all of this will not have been done in vain. Today, Debbie's mother is still out there fighting the fight for her daughter hoping to see her killer behind bars soon. She is not a huge user of social media, and she doesn't text. She is aware of what a podcast is, but I'm under the impression someone would have to get on a device for her and show her what to do and where to go. Debbie's father has retreated from the investigation and does not speak openly about her nor did he participate in the press conference two years ago when the case was reopened. If it weren't for Debbie's mom, it's likely that this case may never have reopened. She is one of those lucky cases, if you can find anything lucky about this. She's lucky to have two detectives that did not allow Debbie's file to sit on a shelf and collect two decades of dust. Though Katina does feel as time went on, they did need to turn their attention away from Debbie's case. In the beginning, they did everything that they could, but after a while, things just stalled. I get that. Detectives have other cases that they need to attend to, cases with viable leads, and Debbie's case simply ran out of leads after a while. But all of us who listen to podcasts know that sometimes what these cases need is time. Time needs to pass. Science needs to advance. Technology needs to develop. 
And this is where Katina and Sarah feel the answers lie with Debbie's case. I think the detectives who investigated the Golden State Killer said it best at the press conference after they caught him. The answer was, and always going to be in the DNA. The same can be said for Debbie's killer, who is also a serial rapist. The answer is in the DNA. I asked Katina to tell me what she misses most about Debbie, and she just said everything. She misses the way she used to braid her hair. Debbie taught Katina how to manage her curls when they were in high school. And to this day, Katina still uses the tips and tricks that Debbie taught her to style her hair. Katina shared a picture of herself and Debbie with me when we first started talking. And I kid you not, dreamers, these girls could have been sisters. I don't know if she'll want to, but perhaps she will share that picture with all of us on the Facebook page. Katina would be the first to tell you that that's what they felt like. Sisters. She misses Debbie's laughter, her smile, her goofiness, her wittiness. She misses talking to her on the phone. She misses her compassion. She just misses her. Everything. She misses her best friend. It's been 22 years since Debbie was murdered as of this past August. It's 22 years that this world did not get to have Debbie in it. 22 years her family didn't get to have her. 22 years that Katina didn't get to have her friend. And most, if not all of us listening, have only had a chance to know Debbie and death through her friend, who to me is her champion. Of course, Debbie's mom is as well. But Katina is the one who introduced all of us to Debbie. She made her more than just a name on a headstone, more than just another victim of a violent sexual predator. Because of Katina, Debbie is able to live on in memory so we can talk about her. So we too can be her voice because damn it, this man should not be free another freaking day. I got on social media and I begged everyone that I could think of to please help me spread the word about this story of this episode. The moment I received Katina's message, this case started picking away at me from the inside out. The emptiness, the hole in Katina's heart, the void in her life, it's all of ours now until this bastard is locked up. Debbie is dead, yes. But the lives of those who loved her and had to live with her killer still out there lurking around has destroyed them. It destroys all of us in one way or another. Katina survived her sexual assault. She survived and thank goodness for that. But for the years following, her life was a nightmare. She dropped out of college, choosing to travel for a while just to get away. And Katina was raped, and she became pregnant as a result of that rape and terminated the pregnancy. 
and I don't often ask much of anyone listening, but I fully expect everyone to treat Katina's candidness and honesty with respect and compassion. This is not what we're here for. And if anyone so much has anything disparaging to say on social media towards Katina, you will be asked to leave the discussion. Anyway, in between all of this, Katina found herself in an unhappy marriage to a man that she could only describe as a total jerk. In the early 2000s, Katina developed uterine and ovarian cancer, and this led to having undergone a total hysterectomy. A year after that, she was diagnosed with breast cancer, resulting in a single mastectomy. To Katina, she felt as though she was made to go through all of these really difficult life experiences without a best friend to lean on, to be there for her. And this developed into the anger that I spoke of. The resentment that her best friend was six feet under in a box because some anonymous asshole decided to extinguish one of the most beautiful people on this planet. Like I said, Katina thinks about Debbie every day, but she doesn't talk about her too often. She said if people weren't already sick and tired of her talking about her all the time, she probably would. I hope she knows now that thousands and thousands of people have now willingly listened to her. Thousands and thousands of you lovely people out there who have taken the time to allow me to tell this story. You've absorbed what we've had to say. And now you know who Debbie Dorian is. All of you listening are compassionate, loving people who have demonstrated that to me time and time again in your willingness to open your hearts and your minds to the stories of these injustices of the world. To help carry this story with you. To help take just a little bit of it off of Debbie's loved ones. It's all of ours now, Katina. We are with you. Katina is okay today, but she's still angry and hurt and sad. She works as a human resources manager in the Los Angeles area. She met her husband in 1997 and they were married in 2010. And her life with her husband and her three cats is relatively peaceful now. She loves a good book, but more importantly, she loves a good podcast, of course. She enjoys her time with her family, and in her spare time, she's a landscape photographer. But dreamers, our friend Katina did not have a great deal of support in coping with losing Debbie. She carried around a lot of anger and pain for a lot of years. It being unsolved certainly compounds that. She also carries around the burdens of regret and guilt. She deeply regrets the argument that the two of them had in high school that led to them severing their friendship for some years to come. And with that, the regret of those lost years she could never get back. Years that she could have had with Debbie, but didn't. There is very little that can be said to bring any kind of comfort or solace in the face of that. 
But what I can say is that at least things were on the mend when Debbie did die. And you did have that time to talk to her, and to be with her, and to hug her. At the very least, there was that. Though it was fleeting, at least you two had that. Katina carries the burden of guilt. Feelings that somehow the trajectory of how things happen would have changed or shifted if their breakup never occurred. Katina thinks of what could have happened differently in a parallel universe where the girls stayed friends instead of having that fight and going separate ways. That she would have been with Debbie. That she likely would have been a roommate. She wouldn't have been alone. And she wouldn't have died alone. That Katina would have been there to protect her friend. I explained to Katina that I did not feel like this guilt was hers to bear. I could not possibly say something cliche like everything happens for a reason. No, there's no rationalizing murder. All I could tell her is that there is only one person responsible for Debbie's death. One man. She has been on a mission to keep Debbie's memory alive. And now she's got her little army of dreamers right by her side. If anyone has any information that can lead to the arrest of the man responsible for the rape and murder of Debbie Dorian, as well as the rape of at least seven other women in the Visalia area, there is currently a $57,000 reward being offered. Anyone with any leads or information or tips is asked to call Crime Stoppers at area code 559-498-7864. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to Debbie's story and to everyone who has shared this episode, especially all of the hosts who kindly offered to help us spread the word about this case. Thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Until next time, sweet dreams. <laughs>